So I think I'd, um, <clears throat> I'm going to err on the side of caution and just uh, remind you all that we have a business meeting next Sunday after church. I'm not sure if the, congrega- uh, the Constitution actually requires the announcement to be made from the bulletin the two previous Sundays, but uh, I mean from the pulpit, <laughs> the pr- two previous Sundays, but I'm reminding you, next Sunday we have a business meeting. If you can be here, that would be great. Scripture reading today comes from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus is speaking here. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears, bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Would you pray with me now, please? Father, thank you um, for your faithfulness to us. Lord, those of us who have put our faith in you, who have put our trust in what Christ has done on that cross, every one of us can tell of times when we failed you and we've sinned, where we've wandered away from you and we have found that you are faithful and you draw us, each and every one of us, back to yourself. We thank you that we stand in grace. We don't stand in our own merit. We thank you that you sought us out and you bought us with the precious blood of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that after making us your own, um, you put your Spirit in our hearts and And he enables us to live this life that we're called to. Not perfectly because we sin. But whatever strength we find to do what is right, it comes from you. And you've given us your word, Lord. You teach us things that we wouldn't otherwise know. You open truth to us that we need, Lord that we could never discover on our own. And that truth matters. It matters in our lives. It changes us, Lord. Your truth um, sanctifies us. And your truth is your word. So as we open that word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us and that through that word you would make us more and more into the image of your son Jesus and it's in his really wonderful name that we offer you ourselves in our prayers Amen 
So hell has its own religion, its own prophets too, and they stand diametrically opposed to the Christian faith and God. The unknowing and uncritical, especially in our own nation, think there's a kind of battle going on between Christianity and atheism. That is the belief that God doesn't exist or in our purposes. Also agnosticism, that pleading that they're not sure whether God exists or not. But the truth's not quite so simple. The, the movement toward atheism is really not an end point. It never has been. Rather, it is just a movement away from the truth. And uh, an individual person um, may become uh, and remain a committed atheist all their lives and be basically a moral person. Many people have been. But a culture only pauses a moment on the time scale of ages on that particular threshold and soon after it begins a long tumble down into the abyss of moral relativism where right and wrong are no longer absolute and certainly not defined by God but exist only in the minds and hearts of individuals. However, there is no equilibrium in that system of thought. It is inherently unstable. And soon the individuals who come to power begin trying to impose their personal ideas of right and wrong on everyone else. And for a time, there are several different groups holding different understandings and philosophies, philosophies but all uh, having as their foundation, if you can call something as weak as that a foundation, but all having as their foundation the idea that truth is merely relative, and yet holding at the same time the inconsistent belief that their ideas happen to be the correct ones. And again, for a time, those different groups strive one against another, but at some point, one group's power becomes more concentrated and they become the arbiters of a new moral code which is precisely their ideas of right and wrong and then instead of having God telling us what is good and what is not we have mere men giving us their thoughts and telling us that that's the way that all good people think but let's be honest shall we what person have you ever known in your life or have ever met in your life other than what we know about Jesus Christ to whom we would entrust such a thing there is none is there I mean even the very best of all people we would not entrust that to and it's really no good replying to me and saying this process hasn't been entrusted to a single person but a group of people who through consensus have devised or are devising our moral philosophy. And that's manifestly, manifestly untrue. There were other groups with different thoughts who have been pushed to the side. And the morality of any people who have no God is the morality of the people who have the power. And we all know what men and women will do to get and maintain that power. And that certainly tells us something about their morality. 
Now, while that particular situation where groups' ideas become the standard, that can be maintained for a period of time, that is, as long as those who believe it and advance it are empowered, there's no native strength in it. When some stronger group or person appears, people abandon that philosophy as quickly as rats abandoning a sinking ship. And what comes next is sure to be stronger and more resistant than what it replaced. And this new philosophy, it demands loyalty and it suffers no opposition. And the loyalty it demands is in reality a low form of worship. Now this, I think, is where we are as a nation. And yet, long before the other power arrives on the scene, worship has been happening. You see, God is no longer the focus, that's true. The self is or money, or rock stars, or sports figures, or cars, or homes, or careers, or sex, or leisure. For human beings are inherently religious, and they will worship something. And worshiping anything less than the one true living God is, by definition, idolatry. And idolatry, when you remove all of the veneer, whether it's wood or stone or the modern equivalents that we've already mentioned, idolatry is the worship of Satan. And that is where the real battle is. It is a battle between worshiping God and what is by nature not God. Or if you prefer, it is a battle between giving yourself to the one who, in his goodness, created all things, including you, or falling in line with Satan, the enemy of God and everything that is good. There really is no middle ground. Or rather, maybe we should say that all middle ground is simply a transition to one end or the other. Now what we've been talking about here, though in many ways uh, may be abstract, it's pretty good summary, I think, of what's happening in our nation, as I've already noticed. And there are other movements and ideas, to be sure, that have been going on, but, but that move towards atheism and that move toward agnosticism has been the driving force in our culture for several decades now, and it seems to have, at this time, found the dominant place in our culture, and we're beginning to see its fruit. But we have not reached the end, end point yet. Now, we could, I mean, we could look to other nations in our own day, nations which are, are farther down that road. Or we, we could look backward into history and gain some insight to what awaits us when we arrive at the destination that we're heading to as a nation. But we're going to do neither this morning. Instead, we're going to look to the future. Uh, we're going to look to a time when the battle lines are distinctly drawn, when the end game is being played out, where we will see the strategy of our enemy clearly laid out. We're going to turn once again to the book of the Revelation, and I would like to ask you to join me there, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13. We're going to look at the second half of the chapter today, verses 11 through 18. 
Now, one of the things that we're going to discover here, as well as seeing what uh, will happen in the future and an ex- understanding, at least to some extent, uh, the meaning behind the movements in our own days, is we're going to see six identifying marks of a false religion. Now, I have to tell you, there's an awful lot of material here. And the truth is, I may have bitten off more than we can chew. Because there's so much here. But here we go. So the first half of chapter 13 describes for us secular power or the rule of the Antichrist. And while the movements there were all about politics of power, mixed within that rule, we saw elements of religion where some people worshipped that man because of his power. The second half of the chapter describes the full implementation of that religion, the religion of hell. It's no longer merely about governments and powers or, or people's own choices to do or not to do what they want or everyone's uh, making up his or her own mind about what is right and wrong, but we see the power of evil demanding worship from all the world. And finally, at the end of the game, seeming to have gained what it has so long sought to have, that power of evil will enforce its will, not just on a region, not just on a country, not just on a hemisphere, but on the entire world itself, and it will fully reveal itself to us. Verse 11 introduces us to the prophet of hell's religion. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. So this man is referred to as a beast, which ought to alert us to the fact that he is in character like the first beast, the Antichrist. You know, describing anyone as a beast tells us that in some manner this person uh, has lost or is losing those things which make him or her human. In fact, he really is a product of evil. He came out of the earth, which is where the locusts came from in an earlier chapter, out of the earth, out of the abyss. This person has a very smell of hell about him. And again, just as the Antichrist, this person rose, this time out of the turmoil of evil, out of the ground, not out of the sea. We saw last week, if you'll remember, when we looked at the first beast, in the chaos and uncertainty of the world of that time, one person is going to rise to the top. And the same thing is happening here. So in this turmoil of the evil of that day, one will stand out and above all the others. And what we see here is not so much on display Satan's intelligence or his planning or his abilities or capabilities. Rather, we see that he finds these people and he seizes them and uses them for his own end. He's causing the evil and the chaos. But he hasn't the ability to plan and act as God does. He just seizes those who have risen to the top. Verse 2 continues the description of the false prophet. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. He only has two horns, so 
he has some native authority which he got on his own, but he's not as powerful or authoritative as the Antichrist. But as we'll see, he acts on behalf of that Antichrist and uses all of his power. And if there were any doubt as to his true nature of this person, that last phrase should remove it. He spoke like a dragon. I mentioned this last time, but that verse in the scriptures that says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ought to pay attention to that. And it is certainly true here. This second beast is at heart like the first beast, the Antichrist. He has at heart one with Satan. Now, this second beast, this uh, false prophet, might be thought of as a kind of a hanger-on, a a sycophant, or maybe we can think of him as a henchman doing the dirty work of the Antichrist, but all such people are toadies. (laughs) And they find their meaning and existence in the power of another. But there's one more thing to note about this false prophet. And that is, he has two horns like a lamb, even though he spoke like a dragon. You see, he is in some sense a parody of Jesus Christ. He speaks in pretended meekness. He claims to be good, but hatred is in his heart. And he is religious, all so religious. Uh, what what we see in these things is that he he does that. He see, we see that in the things he does in this chapter, and then later on in another chapter, he's referred to as the false prophet, false, because he points people away from the living God to something less, something so much less, to a to a mere created being who has given itself to evil. See, that's what all false prophets do. They point people away from the one true God to the worship of something that's not God. It's happening in our own day. Just as it has happened in the past, time out of mind. And that's why Revelation, in speaking about the future, can speak to us in our day as well. For all their pretended meekness and goodness, the false prophets have an idolatrous agenda. They're religious, but they're rotten. And that's the first identifying mark of a false religion is the ungodly character of its leaders. Now what we see here in in these two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet, is is a union of secular and religious power. And that's exactly... Uh, explicitly demonstrated in the next verse. And so we read this, verse 12. It, that is the false prophet, exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound has been healed. And so this false prophet, the second beast, is, he's not interested in mere political power. He, he has this dark twist in his soul. He has been part of the religious world all of his life, and his interests are in the spiritual realm, and they're otherworldly, but they're not the clean and the, and the good and the pure quality of the Christian faith that he wants. But he wants a choking smoke and dust of darkness, which is fascinated and captured his soul. 
Now that first beast may only enjoy the worship offered to him, maybe in the same way that a movie star enjoys the adulation of his or her fans. At least that's not what that first beast set out for. He wanted political power. But that worship is at the very heart and soul of the false prophet. He craves to see it happen. He does all that he can to make it happen. And here, at the end of time, there is no choice in the matter. At least not a free one. People are compelled to follow the Antichrist. The false prophet uses all of the authority of the Antichrist to force people to worship him. There have been other times like that in the history of the world, and it's happening. It's happening. In some places in our world, even as we sit here today, there are some people that are being faced with that same kind of choice. Deny Christ or die. And it will continue to happen as long as there are people on this earth until that final earth-encompassing power arises and lays world bare where people are forced to submit to some religious power. Now sometimes people have even tried to do that in the name of Christ. You know that if you know anything about history. Although nothing could be farther from the true spirit of Christianity. You see, our God and our faith are really the only ones that really do permit people a free choice. We want, don't we, don't we really want everyone to know the freedom and joy of a relationship with God? But we will not force it on anyone. Indeed, we cannot for it has to be freely chosen in response to God's loving entreaty to people for it to be real and lasting. And that's really the second identifying mark of a false religion. It will force you to accept it if it has the standing and power to do so. It will force you to follow it. The false prophets will set out to do just that in our days and in the last days, just as all false prophets have always done. But in those last days, something will occur, which although it has been happening right along in in, in kind of spurts and fits, uh, at different times and places, it's going to happen in an unprecedented way in the final days. Satanic power will be on full display. Verse 13 tells us, And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down out of heaven in full view of the people. I want you to know that's actual satanic power. That false prophet was given the power to do those things by the dragon, by Satan, obviously, and and that's grandest sign will be to cause fire to come down from heaven. You know, the Jews thought that 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 was a sign that only God Almighty can do. But here we're told that Satan will be able to do that very thing. Now I want you to know, satanic power is indeed a mark of false religions. And and it's incurred in the past, and it it happens even in places in our world today. And of course it's going to happen in the future. But it's relatively rare, at least in its open manifestation. 
So, so we can't say that the third identifying mark of a false religion is satanic power, even though it's not always present out in the open. But that false prophet isn't finished yet. Far from it. And we might say, from a Christian and Jewish perspective, that he adds insult to injury. Next, in verse 14. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth, and it ordered them to set up an image. It's an idol in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now here we have a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments, specifically the one prohibiting the making of images, and the images to honor the Antichrist. And so we see that false religions cause people to sin. That's the fourth identifying mark of a false religion. It causes people to sin often through some kind of an idolatry. Now all you have to do is take a moment and think in any one of those false religions that come to your mind, you can identify that idolatry that's associated with it. And that's a mark of a false religion. But this, this verse actually contains two identifying marks. You see, the other one, uh, which is always part of uh, false religion, is that it lies. It deceives. It's not honest. The false prophet deceived the world. He was able to do so by the powerful signs, but he is deceiving them all the same and all along. And false religion always leads people to do something that they know is in direct contradiction to God's word, like worshiping idols, but it often tricks them into doing it. You know, friends, Satan has been doing that very thing since the Garden of Eden. He's been lying and deceiving. And we all too readily buy it. That's the fifth identifying mark of uh, any false religion. It, it deceives people, causing them to violate God's word. So this false prophet, he, he leads the whole world into idolatry, which is what his objective was. And the effrontery to the real faith continues in verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all those who refers to worship the image to be killed. See, another amazing sign which the second beast is able to perform is to give breath to the image. You know, giving breath to it means he made it alive. What such we don't really know. I mean, it could be demonic, probably was. Maybe it's mechanical or electrical, I don't know. But in some way, this image is alive. And it is a false imitation of what God did with the first man and the first woman when he breathed the breath of life into them. And Satan mocks God every chance he gets. And finally, we come to that sixth identifying mark of any false religion. It attacks people who don't follow it. it, it it'll punish them. It'll make them second-class citizens. It'll make them slaves. Or it might, as here in this passage, kill them 
but it absolutely insists when it can that you get on board or you're going to pay the consequences. And those who refuse to worship the image of the Antichrist will be killed. It is happening in our day, something similar to it. People in our world making a choice to follow Christ at the expense of their life. So when we look at this chapter, I mean, we see some of what is coming in the future, and, and I think we've seen some, I think, identifying marks of a false religion, and, and we understand, at least I hope we understand, at least somewhat, the power behind the things that are happening in our own nation. It has never been about your choices, what you think is right and it has always been about worshiping the living God or following Satan. Everything happening in our culture today is happening because of that. That's the battle that we're facing. Now, there are... Uh, going to look at three more things just to kind of round out this chapter, okay? So I can kind of bring it to a close. Told you we were doing a lot today. <laughs> the first is that the false prophet's not quite finished uh, yet. He's mocked God, and, and now he takes one more step to ensure that his plans are carried out. And so verses 16 and 17 tell us, it also forced people to great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so this mark is forced upon all people. And a multiplicity of inclusive categories drives home that all of verse 16. So great and small have to receive that remark. The great cannot avoid it because of their power, and the small cannot hide from it. The rich and the poor have to receive that mark. The money of the wealthy will not avail them without that mark. And the last dime of the poor is useless without it. The free and the slave must get that mark. The free are not free of that requirement. And the slave ought to repel at this order, but it will be taken just as one more thing to put up with in their existence. And that mark, without that, no one can buy or sell anything. But that means especially the necessities of life, things like food, colder, shelter, and things like that. And that mark is either the name of the Antichrist or the number of his name. So in chapter 7 of uh, this book, you remember verse 3, God marked or he sealed his people on their foreheads. And Satan's mark is counter to that. It's a parody of God's seal. And so we have two groups of people, those who are sealed for God and forever and those who are marked for the beast, but also, as we know, marked for destruction. Which brings us to the next verse, 18. And I know everyone wants us to look at this verse. So let me just read it. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. And everyone wants to know what or who that 666 stands for. 
Now I want to explain something to you. Um, it's something that was practiced in, uh, back in the days when our Bible was written. It was called gematria, and, and neither the Greek nor the Hebrew language had numbers. We have separate numbers that represent different amounts of things, but instead they used letters of the alphabet to represent different numbers. For instance, A might equal 1 or B might equal two, etc. And, and for each letter in a name, uh, you, you can translate that letter into a number, and then you can add that to the next letter, to number, and you can come up with a total. And uh, one of our commentators gave an example, and here it is up there on the screen. It's uh, it's Jesus, and that's uh, the name of Jesus. And and so the one letter is 10, and the next is 8, and the next is 200, and then 70, and then 400, and 200. And if you add all this together, you get 888. And so some people have taken the name Nero, and they managed to add it up to get the number 666 using this gematria, right? And many commentators accept that. They believe that was what that referred to in that day. However, I have to tell you that... The, to get that number, you have to do some unusual gyrations to get there. Uh, you have to translate Nero's name into Hebrew, and then you have to use a kind of an alternate spelling to, to reach that amount. In fact, one commentator said that uh, almost anything can be done with these numbers if you manipulate them enough. So if A equals 100 and B equals 101 and C 102, then Hitler totals 666. But that number 6 is the number of a man. And, and it could mean maybe something less than God and less than perfection, missing the mark. In our language, that number is written 666. It's a little different in the Greek. It could indicate another man whose name could be reduced to, so as using the symbols like Nero's name was, and so it added up to it. Many people have tried to do that with different people's names in the past and in our own time. Uh, it, it could indicate a person who has six letters in each of his name. It, it could indicate a kind of an unholy trinity, since we write it as three separate sixes, such as Hitler and Mussolini and the Japanese Emperor Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin. It could even indicate a man with a Bible, a man, the number of six, and 66 books in the Bible, which would fit the religious connotation. Of course, he would take this word and twist it and distort it. You know, it, it, it may even be possible that the Antichrist will simply use that number as a kind of in-your-face snub to God and Christians, and, and then it would simply be the number foretold by the scriptures. Now having said all of that, this is the wisdom we need here. We need the wisdom to know that we just don't know. I think the number's vague on purpose uh, so that it can fit any different number of situations that have occurred down through the centuries. But I also believe when the Antichrist comes on the scene, we'll see, we'll know, the people that are there then will know how it fits. The last thing I want to look at this morning is really something that harkens back to last week in the first part of the chapter. And that is, the only people who will not be deceived will be believers. 
everyone whose name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. Now there are people in that process who will during that time put their faith in Christ, but it's only those who, who have their name in the Lamb's book of life who won't be deceived. And again, it's not because we're so smart or discerning or clever, but it's because we belong to God and he will not lose us. There is in this chapter, and I talked about it last week, what I call a kind of a crystallization that is happening. And it's going to be apparent that it's happening because of the speed with which it will occur. The events of those days will drive people to one end or to the other. But that crystallization is happening now. Today, every day, day in and day out, although it is not as readily observable because it moves at a slower pace. But it is happening. People are moving to one end or the other. They're moving to a relationship with the Satan and darkness, or they will move to a relationship with the living God. And you, every one of you, and me, we know the truth. Today, The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ, don't let another day pass you by. You come see me. You go see another Christian you know, someone who you know walks with Christ. We'll show you from this Bible how you can know that Christ is yours and you are his. But but don't stop there. Then tell that person that you know, your friend, your family member, your acquaintance, your co-worker. Tell them what Christ has done for you. And those of us who have known him for a long time, well, let us learn to do the same. Today is a day of salvation. Would you pray with me, please? Father, again, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help each of us here, Lord, to um, choose and choose every single day who we will worship and whose side we are on. And those of us who belong to you, Lord, we know that we will never be lost to you. Help us, Lord, to reach out and bring those others with us. Help us to tell them the truth. In Jesus' name.